Hey, well, welcome to Sojourn. My name is Justin, and I'm the lead pastor here. It's good to gather with you this morning uh, to be able just to open up God's Word to sing these songs. I love the songs that we just sang. I know some of those may be new to you and unfamiliar, but I hope that you were able to just sing those out and see the lyrics as we sung the gospel to each other and sing praise to God for His great grace towards us. And if this is your first time here at Sojourn, we're grateful that God's brought you to gather with us. Uh, We are all about Jesus, and so we constantly want to call one another to remember and be reminded of and refreshed in the gospel. And so if this is your first time with us this morning, I hope that's already taken place and will continue to take place as we open up God's word now. If you do need a Bible this morning, if you just raise your hand, uh, some people will bring a Bible around to you. We want you to be able to read God's word with us this morning. Uh, we're in this series, as Alan mentioned, in the Torah and the first five books of the Bible. And uh, because we're covering large patches of scripture at a time, it's not all going to be on the screen. So we'd love for you to be able to read along out of the word with us. And if you don't actually own a Bible, we'd love to give that to you as a gift this morning. You know, I think all of us at some point in time have had the experience where we, uh, at one day, find out that something we either heard as a kid, something we were told as a kid or thought as a kid is not really true, or it's not how something actually happened, or maybe it didn't happen at all. We get older, and we're like, wait, wait, what? What happened? What, what's going on? Maybe it was when you found out that Santa Claus really was your parents all along. Maybe it was when you, I know, sorry, I just ruined somebody's <laughs> life. Maybe, maybe it was when you found out, found out that high school really isn't like Saved by the Bell or High School Musical. Maybe it was when you found out that Lindsay Lohan really doesn't have a twin, even though she did in The Parent Trap. Or maybe it was like my wife when she was growing up and was talking about being how her mom became pregnant. And she was convinced that the way that her mom became pregnant is because her and her dad had decided that they wanted to have a baby. So they prayed really hard and then God put a baby there. And even though her friend tried to tell her there's a little bit more to it than that, she was convinced that the way, that's the way it was up until at least high school or so. No, I'm just kidding. I think it was fifth grade, but anyway. I think for some of us, though, that's the case with the story of Noah in the book of Genesis. We can have kind of a kid-like view of it. I mean, when I was a kid, we used to sing a song growing up in the church about the flood. And it said, the Lord said to Noah, there's going to be a floody, floody. Lord said to Noah, there's going to be a floody, floody. Get those children out of the muddy, muddy children of the Lord. Now, that's kind of a fun, happy-go-lucky kind of song, right? I mean, animals coming by twosie-twosies and (laughs) raining for 40 daisy-daisies, right? It's a silly song. But I think sometimes we have that view as a kid, but I think if we're honest, we can still kind of have that kid-like view of the flood and Noah. Man, the story of Noah is a hard story. It's a, it's a hard story. It's not a fun story. It's not a cute story about Noah hanging out on the boat with a bunch of friendly animals. And the story of Noah is about sin and judgment. It's about punishment. It's about death. And it's difficult. It's challenging as we read this story of Noah, but it's also instructive. And while this silly kid song about Noah and the ark doesn't really give us the full story of what's going on, maybe though, just maybe the story of Noah and the flood is not merely about hard things. Maybe it's a story of hope and grace too. 
And so today, that's what we're going to look at in the book of Genesis, in God's word. And in it, I believe that we will learn a lot about God and we'll learn a lot about ourselves, even here and now, even though this happened such a long time ago. And my prayer this morning is that God would help us to know him, that God would help us to follow him more fully and more faithfully because of our time in his word today. So let's pray that God would do that work as we open up to Genesis chapter 6. Father, we do give you thanks that we can be together this morning. It's such a beautiful day outside. Lord, we thank you for days like this. But Lord, as we open up your word this morning, we're going to read about a very different kind of day when things are not so beautiful outside. And Father, I pray that as we look at this hard story in the scriptures, Lord, that you would help us to see you in it, that you would help us to see ourselves in it. And they would teach us about yourself, that you would teach us about ourselves and that we would might more faithfully follow after you in our life right now. Whether we know you or don't yet know you, Lord, I pray that you would draw us to yourself this morning as we look at the story of Noah and the flood. We ask for your spirit to do a work that only your spirit can do, that you would connect the truths that we hear in our ears this morning and go into our minds, that you would connect that to our hearts and affect our lives today. And we want that to be for your glory and for our good and the good of the people of this city. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll go ahead and open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 6. That's what we're going to start with this morning. And we will be looking at some different things around Genesis chapter 6 this morning. So go ahead and flip over there. I'm going to read starting in verse 5. And then we're going to jump a few verses. And I will let you know when we do that. The author of Genesis writes this, starting in verse 5 of chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And then jumping down to verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. In Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 is a hugely significant statement about the state of the world and humanity and it is given to us from the perspective of God, from his vantage point. Verse 5 says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Things are not good Wickedness is great on the earth. It's rampant all over the earth. And notice the absolute statements that he makes. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart. Not some, but every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is a constant 
for all of humanity. And it's a clear indictment on the pervasiveness of sin that has infected the world. Infected the world at the depth and detail of the human heart. For sin has affected and poisoned the heart of man. And out of that heart overflows sin and rebellion against God. And I think a good question for us to ask at this, at this point is, how did we get here? How did we get to this place where God would make such a clear indictment on sin and humanity? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, we learned that through the deception of Eve and the disobedience of Adam, humanity has been plunged into and plagued by sin. They've chosen to follow and worship and obey anything other than God, namely self. And Adam and Eve, the first parents, essentially make the choice and the statement that they can be their own God. That they can be sufficient to rule and to live and to have joy and peace apart from God, separated from him. And the effects of this choice are catastrophic. Life becomes difficult. Even the earth itself is subjected to futility because of their sin against the creator. It affects the hearts of every person and it affects the very cosmos. In Genesis chapter 4, we learn that Adam and Eve have children after sin has entered into the world. And so we could read this story and say, well, wait a minute, maybe it's just contained to Adam and Eve. Maybe it doesn't get passed on. Maybe it's not a, a genetic kind of thing. Maybe there's hope still. But right away, we realize that Cain, their firstborn son, murders his brother Abel out of jealousy, anger, competition, and self-focus. The line of humanity goes through Cain and the descendants of Cain continue to live from this place of an evil heart. Continuing to reject God's rule and reign over creation. But we find out at the end of chapter 4 that Adam and Eve have a, another son and they call his name Seth. And Seth is essentially kind of a replacement of Abel. Maybe there's still hope, Eve thinks. In verse 26 of chapter 4 we learn that Seth has a son. And he called his name Enosh. And at that time, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, we don't know why the author specifically mentions this here. But what it makes it sound like is up until the point of Enosh's birth and Seth's family being present, that people are not worshiping God. They're not calling on the name of the Lord. Genesis 5 is interesting. A lot of us, as we read Genesis chapter 5, can get caught up as we walk through generation after generation and think, man, these people lived for a really long time. But I think what's most interesting, what's most striking about Genesis chapter 5 is that it tells a story of death. Each paragraph ends with these words, and he died, and he died, and he died. Sin reigns through the line of Cain, and death reigns through all humanity. And then we get to chapter 6. And we see God's assessment of humanity. Sin is everywhere. And this grieves God. Verse 6 says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. God is broken over the sinfulness of man. It saddens him to see these results of disobedience. He looks out and he sees something that at one point in time he looked over all of creation, including humanity, and said, this is very good. Yet now he looks out over all of creation, including humanity, and says, it is very evil. I think it also grieves God because he knows it cannot go on. 
See, the story of Noah that we're going to look at in chapter 6 is, tells us a lot about God. We learn a lot about him. We learn in this story about God's holiness. We learn about God's grace. We learn about God's faithfulness to his plans and his people. So getting to verse 7, it says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. This is a declaration of God's righteous judgment. Humanity has rejected God, has rejected his lordship over it. It has destroyed itself by doing that, has destroyed God's world. But in this, we see that God is holy. And we can talk about God's holiness a lot. And I think sometimes we say that, but we're not exactly sure what that means. Holiness is about the great grandeur and complete perfection of God. A God who devotes himself to his people and requires that same complete devotion to him. God is sacred. God is set apart. He is other. In some senses, God defines holiness rather than holiness defining God. So there's inherent reverence with God. And to violate complete devotion to God is a violation of holiness. To not walk in obedience to the kingship of God is a violation of the consecrated call God has placed on his creation. God has said, you you are my creation. I'm the creator and I consecrate you. I set you apart to follow me, to worship me. But when we reject that and rebel against that, we violate our call to holiness. And so God pronounces punishment and judgment he will destroy the evil of the world and he has to because the holiness and justice of god require that he do that when rebellion is present god cannot remain holy god cannot be called just if he doesn't deal with outright rebellion and sin but then we get to verse 8 and we learn something else about god god is not only holy he is also gracious Verse 8 says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah finds favor with God, not because he has achieved something himself, but because God is gracious. That's what it means to find favor. It's not like Noah figured out some secret trick or plan to know God. What it means to find favor is that Noah was a recipient of grace. Noah found grace from God. So is there hope in the midst of this crooked and perverse world who is this man noah verse 9 the author takes kind of a little bit of a detour and tells us a little bit about this man noah he says these are the generations of noah noah was a righteous man blameless in his generation noah walked with god see the fact that noah is called righteous that noah is called blameless doesn't mean that he is self-righteous it doesn't mean that he is perfect what it means is is that he's striving to walk in obedience with god he's seeking to follow god he believes god is who he says he is he believes that he is supposed to be in relationship with him even though everyone around him isn't and i love the simplicity of the last sentence of verse 9 noah walked with god See, Adam once walked with God in the cool of the day before sin entered into the world. But Noah here is seen as being a man who is striving to be in a relationship with the living God, even in the midst of the sin that is pervasive all around him. And the author gets back to the story of what's going on. In verses 11 and 12, he says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. 
and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Last week, I went and saw the movie Noah. Maybe some of you guys have seen it. And I wanted to go check it out, knowing that I was going to be preaching on Noah. And while there is a lot in this movie that is not biblically accurate, one of the things that I really appreciated most about the movie was its depiction of the wickedness and violence of humanity. You watch this and you see men spitting in the face of God, declaring themselves to be God as they destroy God's world and destroy his image bears. You, you see this p- depicted on the screen and you can kind of sit back and be like, man, I, I can see why there needs to be punishment. I can see why there needs to be judgment. Things are really bad. So God tells Noah, though, his plan of judgment. That in and of itself is an act of grace. God says to Noah, I will send a flood over the earth to destroy all that has breath. But I will not destroy Noah. I will not destroy you and your family. He instructs Noah then to build an ark, a a boat, giving him the specifications of what to do. And he gives him this to endure the coming storm of his wrath on the wickedness of the earth. And God makes a key statement to Noah in the midst of this. He says in verse 17 and 18, everything that is on earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife and your son's wives with you. God will save Noah. This is a promise of grace from God to Noah before the waters come. And Noah believes God. Noah trusts God. Noah obeys God. And then in the next few chapters, we see this plan of God unfold. Water comes from above and below, and it covers the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. It just rains and rains and rains. The scriptures tell us that 150 days go by and the flood prevails over all the earth, destroying all that has breath except that which is on the boat. If you eat of this tree You will surely die, God says. Death has come from disobedience. Man, this is not usually in children's Bibles or the songs we sing. I don't know how many people were on the earth at this point, but all of them are gone except eight. Man, death has come. Judgment has come. And there's a a tension in this story. We see evil being pervasive and judgment must come. But Noah is a faithful man. God brings the flood of judgment on the earth and everything is killed. But then we get to chapter 8 verse 1 and it says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. God saves Noah. He's faithful to his commitment. He brings Noah and his family safely through judgment. And God causes the waters to subside. And out of the deep waters of death, life emerges once again. See, I think the amazing thing about this story is when we sit back and we really get the details of what is going on here. The amazing thing about this story is not that God destroys everything. It's that anyone lives. It's that anyone lives. We see the pervasiveness of sin. We see God's holiness. It's an amazing act of grace by God that he would preserve anyone. 
And God tells Noah and his family along with all of the animals to exit the ark. And Noah listens to God. And then Noah says that, God says this to Noah. I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And because of God's promise, he also gives Noah and his sons a mandate. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God establishes his covenant that he said he was going to establish with Noah. He establishes it with humanity, with creation. He will not destroy the earth again through water. This is God's promise, and he gives a covenant sign, as he often does throughout the scriptures, a sign of promise, a sign to say, my covenant is real, I will be faithful to it. And he puts a rainbow in the sky, so that in the midst of rain, people will be reminded that God is true to his word. He is God, and this is his everlasting covenant commitment to his creation. See, in this story, we don't just learn that God is holy and that sin must be dealt with. We don't just learn that God is gracious and that he saves a family. We also learn that God is faithful to his plans and his people. God created a world to display his glory, but sin jacked that up. Humanity was supposed to be glory advancers, but humanity has become glory stealers. But see, God made a promise. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the midst of the consequences of sin, God specifically speaking to the serpent at this point makes a promise. I will bring redemption. I will bring reconciliation. Rebellion will not last forever. It will come to an end through a redeemer who I will send through the line of Adam. But the wickedness of humanity seems to snuff out the hope of this promise. Maybe as generations told this story over and over and over again, they said, we, we believe God, we, we trust in the promise. But man, when I look around, I just don't see it. But see, the story of the flood is not just a story of judgment. It's a story of recreation. As the earth is washed clean and the land emerges out of the chaos of the deep, just like it did in Genesis chapter 1. God gives the same mandate to Noah and his family as he did to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply. Have dominion over creation. Respect all Forms of life. Noah represents humanity. Noah is like another Adam. Humanity now continues on under the lordship of God. The seed of Eve that will crush the head of the serpent has been preserved. And a key truth that we see from this is that humanity's sinfulness cannot overcome God's covenant faithfulness. Humanity's sinfulness in its most awful state cannot overcome God's covenant faithfulness. That's true for the world. That's true for all of time. It's true for you and your life right now. Your sin cannot overcome God's covenant faithfulness to you. So is Noah the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15? Is he the seed of Eve that will crush the head of the serpent? In some ways, yes, but in most ways, no. No, he isn't. 
See, while the floodwaters of judgment purged the world of much wickedness, they did not change the heart of man. Even after seeing the judgment of God, hearing the cries of people around him that are drowning and being put to death because of their sin, and seeing the grace of God towards Noah and his family, even after all of those things that Noah has seen, Noah still chooses self over obedience. At the end of chapter 9, we see that Noah gets drunk and he strips naked and falls down in a drunken stupor. His son Ham makes a mockery of him and his nakedness and seeks to drag his brothers into it. And I say, why would Noah do this? Why would his sons, who have seen all the same things that Noah has seen, why would they do this? We don't really know, but maybe if we think about the heart of man, maybe it's because he became distracted with the things of a broken world again. The flood has purged the earth, but God knows that the human heart has not changed. Sin and rebellion are still present because sin and rebellion reside in the heart of man. So God would be just to destroy the world again. God would be just to take out humanity, but he won't because a promise has been made and he is patient. Why is he patient? Because he is going to redeem He is holy, he is gracious, and he is faithful to his plans and his people. See, Noah is essentially kind of another Adam, a new Adam, but he is like his father, Adam. He is a disobedient son whose disobedience results in shameful nakedness, just like Adam. See, we can step back also and see that in the story of Noah, we don't just learn about God, we also learn about ourselves. Because you and I come from the line of Noah, which is the line of Adam. So what can we do? We can strive to be good. We can seek to do good. We can even seek to walk faithfully with God. But the reality is we can't do that on our own. If we follow the line of Noah, then we will walk in a path of rebellion and disobedience. And we can just look around and see that the world continues to be marred by sin It's not difficult for us to see that, whether it's in our own homes or in our communities or on the news, sin is still very present. And again, God would be completely just to judge and condemn the world by destroying it, but the rainbow remains. The covenant of the kindness and graciousness of God remains. Sojourn, what the story of Noah tells us is we don't just need another Adam, we need a better Adam. And here's the good news for you and for me today. He has come. In Luke chapter 3, Luke reminds us that Jesus comes from the line of Noah. But he's different than Noah. Instead of walking in rebellion, he walks in faithfulness and obedience. He is the perfect son of God who came into the world to redeem the world. He is the seed of Eve that came to crush the head of the serpent In the sin of the world, he is a better Adam who instead of giving unrighteousness to the world, gives his righteousness to the world. Instead of bringing death into the world, brings life. First Peter 3.18, Peter writes, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ took on the sin of the world. He is greater than Noah because through him sin is paid for and new hearts are given. 
See, what we see in the flood story is that the world was washed of evil through the flood and it was recreated. But what we see in Christ is that you and I are washed clean of the evil within us and we are recreated. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is good news for all of us. All of humanity, because all of humanity, just like Noah, cannot redeem itself. Humanity cannot transform itself. It can't cleanse itself from sin. It can't change its heart of rebellion. We all need a redeemer. We all need a mediator. We all need a reconciler. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, tell us that this mediator has come. When the goodness In loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. If you are in Christ this morning, If you have believed that Jesus died in your place for your sin, and I mean like desperately clinging to it. Not just acknowledging it with your mind, but desperately clinging to the fact that Jesus died for you as Noah knew that his only refuge was a boat in the midst of this storm. If you are desperately clinging to Jesus' death for you, then you have been saved from the wrath of God just as Noah was. Not from anything within you, not because you had it all together, but because God was gracious and merciful to you in the midst of your rebellion. See, the mighty refuge in the midst of the raging sea of your sin is and always will be the cross of Christ. And then all that it accomplishes, all that it reminds us of is our hope now and forever. Jesus paid for your sin. Jesus rose again to give you new life. He endured the bitter cold waters of wrath. And you now, baptized into his death, are cleansed and raised to new life in his resurrection. Life emerges from the waters of death. But... Jesus has not simply come to kill sin and death and give life. He will come again to reconcile all things to himself. He will come again to bring a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no sin at all. It will be the ultimate act of recreation. But here's the deal. As we wait for that, As we wait for the full and final consummation of God's kingdom, as we wait for the new heavens and the new earth, we can do one of two things. We can follow the way of Noah or we can follow Christ. See, Noah was not righteous on his own. He he was given grace as he sought to know and follow God, but Noah is tempted to not trust God. He's tempted to not believe that God is gracious, to not believe that God is good, to not believe that God is faithful to his plans and his people. And so are we. We have the temptation to put our hope in other things, even though we, just like Noah, have seen the faithfulness of God. We are tempted to lose our patience as we wait, as we wait and we we get distracted just like Noah did. Because we live in this 
continually, just continually fallen world. We live with the effects of sin in our own lives. We live with the effects of sin of the lives of those around us, whether it's difficulty at work, difficulty with relationships, disappointments, discouragements, physical sickness, mental sickness, our bodies breaking, breaking down, our bank accounts never quite full enough, death. We know that God says that he will rescue. We know that God says that he will redeem and transform and reconcile. But if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes in the midst of the mundane parts of life, we just don't see it. We have trouble believing it. So we get distracted. We get off track. And we begin to look for joy and satisfaction and peace and other things. Maybe for you, it's relationships. That you put all of your efforts and seek all of your joy out of your friendships or your family or your spouse or your desire to have a spouse or your kids or your desire to have kids. That that is your functional God. That's what you're seeking to find joy and peace in. Maybe it's work for you. That man, your identity is wrapped up in your work and what you live for day in and day out is to advance in your career, to get that dream job, to be successful and receive accolades and pats on the back. Maybe it's money. When you think about money, all you can think about is that you need more so that you can spend more or save more because you just want more of it because that gives you joy and comfort and peace. Maybe it's just things in life. What you live for is an ease of life and comfort and fun and just to be generally distracted from the reality of the world. Maybe it's food and drink. You're focused so much on the taste of food and you indulge in too much eating or too much drinking like Noah did. Maybe it's sensuality. That for you, you live for more flesh, more pleasure, more endorphins to be released because that gives you peace and comfort. Maybe in the midst of this, you even remember Christ and you're thankful for forgiveness, but What you've actually done is functionally set him on the shelf as we clamor for more of the fleeting things of this world. The world that will not last forever, but that Peter tells us will be consumed by fire and transformed into the new heavens and the new earth. And I think if we're honest, we are tempted to to listen to the voices of the world. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are, are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. God's not going to show up. We'll look at everybody's just doing their own thing. Do you really believe this? And we start to believe them. Yeah, where is God? Why hasn't he come? Maybe he has forgotten us and we grow impatient. But see, what I think we need to realize is is that the story of Noah is a reminder that this is not so much about our patience with God, but God's patience with the world. Second Peter chapter three, Peter says this. He reminds us that judgment is coming. He reminds us that this world is passing away just like it did in Noah's day. But he reminds us of God's character that never changes. He said this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. And get this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, 
but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, God is holy, but God is also gracious. He is also faithful to his plans and his people. So church, this morning, Peter's call to you is in the midst of this, don't lose heart. Don't get distracted. You can follow the way of Noah. You can seek to find joy and pleasure and peace in the things of this world, or you can follow Christ. Peter goes on and says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, since you're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. See, if we know Christ, then we can follow Christ. And what a joy it is to do that. All the promises of God find their amen and yes in Jesus. And Jesus tells us he's gone to prepare a place for us. And he will come again. He will not leave us as orphans. And so we wait for that day. And as we wait for that day, we heed the words of Peter. We pursue and follow Jesus. So let me ask you this first. Do you know Jesus? Do you really know him? The wages of sin is death, the scriptures tell us. The holiness and justice of God require punishment for rebellion. Yet God shows grace to us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took the punishment for our rebellion. Apart from him, you will end up and be just like Noah, the people of Noah's day. See, no one can present themselves holy and clean before God, but Christ came to pay for your sin and rose again to give life. And so my question for you this morning is, have you repented of your sin and rebellion and asked God to save you through Christ's life, death, and resurrection? God is patient, longing all to repent and to believe. If you haven't done that, will you do that today? Not knowing what tomorrow will bring for you. But if you do know Christ, if you sit here this morning, you say, yes, I do know Christ. Yes, I am clinging to the fact that Christ saved me from my sin. Then will you follow him? Will you follow Christ, the better Adam, the better Noah, the one who is true and faithful? Instead of getting distracted and impatient, instead of looking for joy and satisfaction and peace in the things of this world, we can take all of those things and redeem those things, the things of the world, for the glory of God. And we can do that with everything in our life. But we don't do that this morning because we walk out of here and just say, yes, that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to try harder to do these things. We do this out of the power of the Spirit in us. We do this out of the promise and the reality of the gospel that's already at work within us. Remember, we have been made new in Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. 
We have been transformed and are being transformed. So as we seek to follow Christ, what we need to do is fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, not the world, not self. Peter says, if you want to be steadfast, if you want to be stable and not distracted by the things of this world, then grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus and see the world around you transformed, how you look at it and how you live in it. Relationships then become opportunities to encourage one another in Christ. As we seek to speak the gospel over one another, sharing it with those that don't yet know Christ, encouraging brothers and sisters with the truth of the gospel, making disciples with work. We no longer work for our glory, but seek to work for God's glory. Our job is seen and has the purpose of serving the mission of God, not the other way around. Money for us becomes an opportunity to say that all we have, we ask God to use all that we've been given for his glory and the advancement of his kingdom. With our things, we we are not taken captive by things or the pursuit of them, but use all of our resources to show the world where our treasure truly is. With food and drink, we can seek to enjoy all of those things to the glory of God with moderation, showing that our God is not our belly. And with sex, we can pursue sexual purity, holy sexual ethics, sexuality in the context of biblical marriage and fleeing sexual temptation. If we know Christ, if we know the better Adam, this world is not what we live for. We live for the glory of God. We live for the good of others, not ourselves. So this morning, if you know Christ, if you desire to follow Christ, then are there things in your life right now where you know you are not following in the way of Christ? You're following the way of Noah, being distracted by the things of the world. And let me encourage you this morning, if that's you, and I think there's, that's probably true for all of us in different parts of our life, that you would repent. And repentance means acknowledging that before the Lord and then turning away from it to pursue Christ. Go before God, acknowledge those things, confess them before him, and God is patient. He is gracious, and he is faithful to you. Pray to God. Let him know the reality of what's going on in your heart. Ask for him to transform and change you. Ask him to help you to pursue Christ. And tell your community. This is not supposed to be something we do on our own. This is something we do together as God's people. Tell your community where you're struggling to follow Christ. And where you're tempted to be distracted by the things of this world. As we wait for the coming of the Lord, let's also remember that he is continuing to call other people to repentance. Let's remember that he's continuing to call people to repentance. Instead of focusing our attention on ourselves and the things of this world, let's continue to be ambassadors of Christ. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, Jesus himself says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all people groups, and then the end will come. As we wait eagerly, as we long for the day of the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus tells us it'll come when everybody's heard the gospel. So praise God, this world is not all there is, but until he comes, let's go. And tell of his holiness, tell of his grace, tell of his faithfulness to his plans and his people. See, Noah and the flood is a story of renewal by grace. And God continues to do that work today in the hearts of men and women. God is still in the business of cleansing us, 
washing us with the water of his word, washing us through the blood of Christ and recreating us, putting his kingdom within us as the spirit dwells within us. God continues to do that work because a better Adam has come and he is reconciling all things to himself. So sojourn, don't get distracted. Follow him now until he comes again and go and tell the world about his grace. As we come to the table this morning to take and eat the bread and drink the cup, I want us to be reminded all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wickedness and self-seeking of Cain has been your story and my story. You were a reviler of God. You were a mocker of your maker. But through Christ's shed blood for you, you were washed in the flood of grace. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Christ and by the Spirit of God. And now you are alive through him. No one in this room has a righteousness of their own. It's all of grace from your holy, gracious, faithful God. And so as you eat the bread... Remember, Christ's body was given for you. As you drink the cup, remember that Christ's blood was shed for you. Rejoice this morning and consider the patience of the Lord is salvation for you today. That at some point in time you did not believe, yet God in his kindness gave you faith to believe. The patience of the Lord is your salvation today. Christ endured the floodwaters of wrath for your sin so that you might have and receive eternal life here and now. And if you're not a follower of Christ, we just encourage you not to come forward, ask you not to come forward this morning to take communion. Because this is a declaration that what we've preached on today, what we've looked at, what we've sung about Christ, that our only hope is Jesus. That's what this is. It's a declaration of that being true for us. And so if you don't yet believe that, if you've not repented and trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, we don't want you to come forward and take communion. We want you to take Christ. So if you don't yet know Christ, would you just sit in your seat and just pray, ask God to reveal himself to you. Take this moment right now to repent of your sin and and ask God to save you here and now in your seat that you might know the grace and kindness of our Lord. And if you do that today, if you want to know more of what that means, please come talk to me afterwards. Come talk to any of our leaders. That's why this church is here. We want people to know God through Christ. Those of you that will come forward, you can come forward when you're ready to receive the elements and tear off a small piece of bread and take a cup to drink and what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you this morning and you can take it immediately or when you get back to your seat. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, there are so many glorious truths contained in it, but there's also some really hard things hard things to understand, hard things to read. But Lord, I pray that as we have looked at the story of Noah and the flood, Lord, that what we've learned this morning is that you are holy, God. That you take sin seriously, God. That you cannot overlook it. But Lord, you're also gracious. Lord, you're also faithful to your plans and your people. And you said a redeemer would come and he has come. 
Lord, help us as your people this morning not to be distracted by the things of this world. Help us not to grow impatient. Lord, as we wait for you to come again, as we wait for the new heavens and the new earth, will there be no more sin, no more shame, no more death, no more crying. Lord, as we wait, I pray that you'd help us to be faithful, to follow Christ, that we would see every aspect of our life redeemed for your glory. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, throwing off the sin that so easily entangles us. And Lord, help us to do that with one another as a family together. And Lord, that I pray that the overflow of that in our life is that we would go out of this place and we would tell more and more people about the freedom that comes in and through Christ. That this world isn't all there is to live for, that there is more. And his name is Jesus. Lord, help us to be faithful to that to believe that in our own life and then be faithful to tell others. And I pray that you would call people to yourself now in this moment, but as we go out as your people into the city this week. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you are God, that your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are above our thoughts. Help us to rest in the fact that you are sovereign over all things and you are good. We love you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.